Oh, this is something that I have heard so many times and continue to hear um, when people try and guess what sport you participate in or tell you that you you look the part. And actually, there is no set look or aesthetic for an athlete. And it's so frustrating that um, that's become such a normalised thing to say. And uh, one of my biggest concerns about this, this problem of Red S is that people often think they need to be thin to have it. And actually, it can occur at any weight. And so, if we ignore the fact that people in a bigger body might be suffering from it, then we will miss a huge percentage of the population who can experience this issue. Hello and welcome back to The Big Run. Today's episode is focused all around Red S. So what is Red S? It stands for Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport, and exactly as that name implies, is all about a shortage of energy available to keep up with the demands of exercise on top of essential daily functions. It's becoming more and more wildly known thanks to the brilliant work of organizations such as Project Red S. And on today's episode, I'm talking to its founder, Pippa Wolven. She's a two times English schools, four times Bucks athlete, a Commonwealth Games athlete, a European cross country athlete, world cross country athlete. She has towed the line at elite level athletics for many years now. And she's also had her own personal experiences of Red S. So in this podcast, we go through getting a better understanding of what it is, symptoms to look out for, ways that you can deal with it. There's some brilliant, brilliant insight and advice from Pippa on this episode, and you can get an even further understanding by going onto their website, which I'll be linking in today's show notes. So Pippa, thank you so much for coming on The Big Run. Really excited to, to dig into to you, your story, your running kind of story, and also all the fantastic work you're doing with Project Red S. And I think perhaps that's a really good place for us to start, actually, is, is sort of a, a dictionary definition about what it actually is. And then we can kind of go and explore your experience with it and get stuck into to some of the questions I have about the subject. So, so for people listening who've perhaps heard of it, but are not quite sure what it is because I think some people have different perceptions of what it actually is is there kind of a a dictionary definition of what red s actually is yeah so I think in the simplest terms it is a mismatch between energy in versus energy out Mm -hmm. and that can occur by deliberate manipulation of caloric intake so trying to watch your weight maybe cutting out carbohydrates or fats or any unhealthy foods, quote unquote, um, or it could be simply underestimating the energy requirements of your activities, which is also really quite common. Mm, okay, that's a really good. So what does the what does the RED actually stand for then in the in the in the red S? So the RED is relative energy deficiency. Um, so it is exactly what the name implies. Mm. And the the S is for sport. Um, but actually, I think in time, we might lose the S because more and more research is showing how this can affect any exerciser um, in any activity. So not just people who define themselves as athletes or sports people. Uh, that's interesting. Because And has it always been called Red S or did it have a name before that? Am I right in thinking it's only recently been called Red S? Yes, exactly. So it was only termed Red S by the International Olympic Committee in 2014. Um, Before that, the closest thing to this was the female athlete triad, Mm. which, as the name suggests, is only limited to females or people who define themselves as athletes. And the triad part of it is that there are three interrelated elements, whereas Red S comprises a much broader spectrum of um, both symptoms and consequences. That's interesting that it was only sort of officially kind of, I was going to say accredited, that's a bizarre sort of thing to talk, but like acknowledged only as early as 2014. I feel like, I don't know, it feels like it's been around for longer. Had there been quite a a bit of sort of uh, momentum to get that kind of official recognition prior to that? Yeah, I think so. It's kind of an umbrella term that I think encompasses lots of things. You know, Mm. we've got overtraining syndrome, which is not quite the same as Red S, but certainly overlaps in many ways. And then you've got disordered eating, eating disorders, all of these things um, might play a part in someone's relative energy deficiency. So I think it's been a long time coming, but it's certainly made huge strides towards understanding this problem among athletes and exercisers. Mm. So going back then and winding back to, to your life as a 
as an uh, elite level athlete. So where did your kind of running journey begin? And then when did, when did Red S become part of, of your story? Yeah, so my running journey began in the same way that lots of people's do, I think, and that's the school cross-country race. Mm. Um, you kind of get roped into it and you don't know what it is until you're doing it. And <laughs> then if you come in the top five or whatever, you get um, taken to the inter-schools races and that's how I got into it. Um, then in the summer, I was dragged along to my local club by a friend and tried the 80 meter hurdles, which I really enjoyed and eventually found my way into the steeplechase, which became my my thing. Um, it was a nice combination of, I guess, longer mm. distances and hurdles. And so it seemed like the perfect fit. Um, and then through that, I um, achieved some success from a uh, junior perspective. I won the English schools a few times and was offered a scholarship to um, an American university called Florida State. Um, which I didn't take up at first. I wasn't very mature athletically. I hadn't trained um, intensely before and I was always into other sports and activities and didn't focus solely on running. Mm. Um, but when I went to a British university first, I started to do that. I um, gradually progressed under some brilliant guidance of the Bud Baldaro, who you are no doubt familiar with, mm. and eventually felt ready to take up um, an American scholarship and moved across the pond. Was there, so was the, what was the reason for you not taking it up initially? Was, did you have like a preconception about what it might be like over there in America that you felt that you had to get yourself ready for? Yeah, exactly. So as I say, I wasn't that mature athletically. I hadn't done huge mileage. I was just finding my way into the, I guess, elite levels. I went to the world juniors and that was my first taste of junior success um, on the world stage. And so I felt like I needed a little bit more behind me before making that big jump because I knew um, that they would be doing much more mileage than I was on. And I had been warned by people who had been before me um, to just, yeah, if, if I could wait, then I should, because um, it's like a, another way of prolonging your university education and enjoying your athletics career as well. Mm, I mean, what have people told you about what it was like over the pond? Was it like with their stories and like kind of perceptions of it's it's pretty hardcore like it's pretty full-on you, you need to sort of brace yourself for it yeah exactly I knew it was intense um they take it very seriously it's much more of a team focus than perhaps in the UK where you kind of run for yourself and your coach is focused on you as an individual rather than the team as a collective um and I wasn't ready to just be a, a cog in a machine I wanted to mm. see where I was going as a as a person as an individual um, so I, I knew about that and um, I wasn't ready for it. And, I, and I'm glad I made that decision in hindsight. Because, mm, I mean, we'll, and we'll get into kind of what happened in your kind of experience. But do you think that sort of slight pause before heading over kind of fortified you mentally for what was to sort of unfold when you did arrive over in Florida? Yes, definitely. Um, before going to a British university, I had never done a double day. I had never um, really raced back-to-back -back races or done anything more intense than my regular Tuesday night training sessions. So physically, it was um, a really good move. And also, I think just maturity-wise, psychologically, I was very much a home girl. I um, wanted to taste university life in Britain first because I knew what that was like it was less of an unknown mm. um so America was a bit of a, a contrast to that for sure yeah and I always take this for granted as well of like from my own personal experience I definitely entered into running later in life sort of in my sort of early to mid 20s and kind of got into it after I'd kind of done the university experience and I think for people who've gone into it from your kind of trajectory where you started quite early on, there's also that age factor that always sometimes gets forgotten. You know, of going to university sort of, you know, 17, 18, those are, those are like formative years. And especially when you're so passionate about a sport or so potentially interested in it, like there's there's potential uh, to be, I don't know quite, quite what it is, what I'm trying to articulate there, to be almost to be, to, to be led astray. Do you know what I mean? Like to, to mm. have like a lot of noise or a lot of input that potentially can be not the best for a, for a young mind. Oh, yes. I, university age is a really big 
point in someone's development. Yeah. And I, at that point in time, wasn't sure I wanted to focus solely on running. I was quite well-rounded. I enjoyed other sports and hobbies and um, was quite creative. And so I did want to explore my options. And I certainly wasn't someone who was all in with the athletics. And uh, I knew that America would kind of force me down that road. And I, mm. I definitely didn't feel ready for that. So you go to Florida then, how and then sort of how does that progress from there sort of I mean what was your kind of what was your first impression sort of day one sort of session one like yeah what was the first thing that struck you when you when you made that journey over the pond Mm, so I think by the time I got to America I was ready to commit to taking my running to the next level I had achieved some junior success but felt I was kind of plateauing in my performance um, and wanted to take the next step up and not have all the distractions that I had at home in terms of a big friendship group, um, going out, you know, everything Mm. else that you might experience at university. And so America was very much one dimensional, focusing on running. Um, The team culture, I I initially really enjoyed, actually, it was fun to be able to train alongside an awesome group of girls who were working towards the same goal. Um, We would travel a lot to, to training sessions and to running, um, group runs, which was pretty novel to me. I had never got in a car to go for a run before, but that was um, what you did when you were out in the sticks in a Florida Tallahassee. Mm. So yeah, it was, it was a real difference from the outset. Um, And initially I found it all really exciting. Mm. So how did that progress then? And what was your kind of experience as it, as it kind of developed? As you say, initially it was exciting. How did that, yeah. How did that unfold when you were there for a longer period of time? The novelty of the amazing facilities, the awesome training group, the more intense, serious structure did wear off after a couple of months. Um, I started to miss the other aspects of my life, the social side of things. Um, There wasn't much time or energy left for socializing and extracurricular activities. You know, you couldn't have a part time job. You couldn't really um, study anything you were interested in because what you chose to study had to work around your training and your racing schedule. Mm. So I found, I found myself losing other elements of my personality that I previously quite enjoyed. And, um, it became all about running. And because of that, I decided, you know, this was my one opportunity to give running my 100% focus. And I did that. And I thought that was going to, reap rewards in terms of performances and um and it did initially for sure i started to run faster i benefited from this increase in training load and this increase in intensity surrounding all the other elements of being an athlete um but after a while it started to um go too far and i crossed this line that i hadn't known existed between discipline and disorder and ended up pretty um unhealthy in 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 physical and mental health Mm, and I'm con- I'm conscious this is you know it's a it's as delicate and and sensitive subject. So I'm again just underlining how grateful I am for you coming on and sort of sharing your experiences of what I can imagine was was quite a a, a difficult time. You know, you talk about that that crossing of of the line of going, you know, sort of realizing that this is an opportunity for you to go all in and really commit, but crossing that line into something that be- became sort of detrimental and, and disordered. I mean. Were there signs then that were there red flags then, or is it only in hindsight that you could see that you crossed over? I mean, when did things start to really come to your attention that perhaps, hang on a second, this isn't, this doesn't feel right. My body doesn't feel right. I'm perhaps not doing what I should be doing to look after myself in this situation. Yeah, there was very much a delayed effect in realizing all of these things. You know, at the time I was studying and training at one of the best NCAA running universities in the country, and there was a total focus on running and performance and all of the things that went into that I bought into and things like clean eating, which was a culture adopted by our team, um, I was committed to. And that never seemed to me at the time to be disordered. It was simply doing what it took to be the best athlete I could be. And so um, that combined with the increase in training volume, um, the increase in focus on on all the elements that go into being an athlete was what led to my eventual demise. But at the time, it just seemed like I was doing all the right things, ticking all the boxes. And so it's only looking back in hindsight that I can see where I went wrong. And 
um, in reality, there was a, a delayed effect to experience the mental and physical downfall of that. Mm, and was everyone else around you sort of following suit, like following that sort of clean eating and the increase in training and load as well? Yes, exactly. Which which was also why I found it so difficult to wrap my head around the fact that any of that could could be wrong because everybody else seemed to be fine in coping with it. And it was just me that was starting to suffer um, from, you know, the physical symptoms of a low energy availability. And I couldn't work out why, because I thought we were all doing the same things. You know, we followed our set training plan and um, it just so happened that unfortunately that training plan was just too much for me. And and it was fine for other people. So it was a real learning experience in um, individual balance and, and what works for you. Mm. And what were what were those sort of grey sort of signs that you could have, to begin with, you could almost not, well, brush off almost because it wasn't concrete. You know, there's things in running that are... Uh, are really black and white. Like if you, if you break a bone, like that's, that's very black and white, but if it was it more sort of, like you say, lack of energy, feeling fuzzy, like what were those? Yeah. What were those symptoms that you were first starting to experience? Yeah. I, I think the difficulty was that none of them were particularly black and white. They were mm. all, um, things that you might ex- expect to experience as an athlete. So it started off with some niggles that I previously never struggled with. Um, I wasn't particularly injury prone, but suddenly I was, um, having sore hamstrings or calf. Things were just slowly niggling away at me. Um, and I spent more and more time in the physio room. Um, I got frequently ill, um, just coughs and colds, nothing outwardly concerning, but just more than than normal. And mm. they took longer than normal to shift. Um, and I suppose the most obvious sign that I completely dismissed because I was constantly reassured by doctors that that was okay, was that my periods were missing. Um, mm. My natural periods this is, and I was at this point in time coming on and off the contraceptive pill because I had moved from Britain to America and the pill was slightly different and I was trying to figure out what was uh, the right one to use for me. And um, when I came off it, I noticed I wasn't getting a menstrual cycle, um, thought, oh, you know, maybe this is worth mentioning to somebody. So I did. Um, and yeah, I was reassured that that was okay. So all of these things that are really not normal, I just dismissed and, um, so I couldn't, yeah, couldn't figure out what was wrong for a long time. I mean, that must have been, this was going to be my next question is what was the kind of support structure around you whilst you were experiencing that? So you'd, you'd gone to the doctors and they kind of assured you that missing your period was, uh, was, was okay. It was normal. Like were the coaches saying anything? Were there other people in positions of responsibility that you could speak to about, about it when, when you were first starting, when you were first starting to experience these symptoms? Yeah, so I think incredibly enough, um, most people in in that era, which was only, you know, 10 years ago, they thought that being on the contraceptive pill was a natural period. And so I mentioned it to my teammates and they said, oh, they were all on the pill and they all had periods, um, which of course is a huge misconception. That's not um, a natural cycle. Mm. And my coach was very good at um, separating herself from any other aspect of an athlete's health um, besides being a coach. And so she wasn't somebody I would have confided in about aspects of my mental or physical health. It was purely a performance transactional relationship in that Mm. sense. Um, And, you know, this was a incredibly high profile sports university. And in theory, we had access to all of the best medical support and physios and and things. But the two things that I needed the most at that point, which were psychologists mm. and dietitians, they weren't um, available to me. So it really was a um, a real missing piece of the puzzle was that that side of it. That's it's, uh, and because when we when us as the UK look to like the American system and NCAA and stuff, it seems like this thing that the resources are infinite like you know the money is insane the coverage is insane like why would they not have a psychologist and a and a a nutritionist like it feels like such a such an easy win for them to have them that's bonkers that that you didn't have access to them during that time so when was the what was the straw that broke the camel's back for you when did you finally i mean when where when did when was the sort of the moment when you realized 
this isn't working, something's wrong, I need to speak to someone else because I'm, I'm not getting the answers that I need here. Yeah, it's hard for me to put um, a time frame on it really, but it was uh, probably six to nine months before I started to realise this wasn't something I could just continue to push through. Um, I'd been very used to feeling fatigue, as, as all athletes do, and just balancing it with a day off here and there and just continuing to put your head down and battle through it on other occasions. And there became a time when I just could not get through it. I had started to feel really tired and weak and um, low in moods on a day-to-day basis, and it just wasn't shifting. And so um, I did reach out to other people for support. I um, started to research my symptoms online and it was very difficult time because I did come across the female athlete triad at this point in time, Mm. um, but didn't identify with it because I didn't know about my bone density or whether I was having stress fractures. Um, I wasn't, I, I didn't know of any, um, I didn't identify with an eating disorder because I still ate three meals a day, even though they were far less than what I really needed as an athlete training that much. And I did not really figure out that my missing periods were such a crucial piece of this puzzle. So it was, it took a long time to um, reach a point where I was able to identify with any particular health condition. Mm, so when, when did you, I mean, so just going back to the the disordered eating thing, cause you were saying that about having, you were still eating three meals, but you weren't getting the the kind of calorific content you needed. I mean, what was the average kind of calories that you were putting in like for the kind of sessions that you were having? Was it like, I don't know, I don't even know what the sort of averages, the rule of like 2000 or something for, again, I'm caveating all of this by saying I'm not a nutritionist, I'm not a qualified expert. I'm just curious to to understand it a bit more. Um, like, w- was there a huge deficit now looking back in terms of what you were putting in, in terms of what you actually should have been putting in, in terms of energy for your body? Yeah, I think um, for an an active female exercising and training as much as I was, I probably needed something like 3,500 calories a day um, just to sustain the demands of my sport. But in reality, I was probably eating around 2,000. So just, you know, to an average person, that would seem perfectly adequate. And I think that's where I kept falling down was that I would compare my intake to that of um, my family members or my Mm. friends, or whenever I went home, I just couldn't see the disparity between what I was eating and what I was expending. And when you're surrounded in this day and age by um, messages in diet culture about carbohydrates or about fats and um, what you should eat in in a day, I just could not see how little I was eating relative to, yeah, exactly what I was expending. So um, it, was, it was very difficult to identify that. Mm-hmm. So how did that finish then with your time in, in Florida and, and sort of coming back to the UK? Was that, I mean, w- w- when did you, or did you strike a, a balance where you actually sort of gained more knowledge and were able to actually give your body what it kind of needed? Like, did you ever get to to a place where you didn't have these symptoms and you weren't, you basically weren't experience, experiencing red S? Mm, yes. So I was in America for just two years. I um, had was able to transfer some credits over from my British university degree, which I had put on hold. So mm. I was able to graduate, um, return to the UK and went to finish my degree in Birmingham. And at this time, I was still struggling with these issues. I had um, actually sought some psychological support with the disordered eating side of things and felt like I was... Um, on the right track with that. Um, Nutritionally, I seem to be much more balanced, but still without understanding the problem, um, I did not realize I had so much debt to repay, I guess. There was this Mm. huge um, energy debt that I'd accumulated over these two years that I then needed to pay off before trying to increase my training. Um, So it took another two years to reach the proper diagnosis of red S, which was, as I say, in its infancy back then, that was around 2016. Um, so it would, had only been going for around two years. Um, and then eventually was able to recover from it once I knew what it was, um, and what the recovery process looked like. I was, mm, cause what thankfully... is the recovery process? And I imagine that's very indicative of, uh, dependent on the individual person as well. And their. Uh, genetic uh, makeup again qualified I'm not a doctor people like but is it is it unique to the person and what what was it for you like that recovery process 
Yeah, exactly. It's entirely unique. And some people are able to go all in and eat whatever it takes to repay that energy debt and put their feet up and not do any activity at all. And um, all of a sudden, you know, these things will balance out and they'll be able to get back into things. Um, for me, I was uh, by that point working. Um, I didn't really feel like I could go from being an elite athlete to doing nothing at all. So mm. had to reduce my exercise significantly, but not eradicate it completely. Um, but I did need to up my energy intake by a long way. And so it took um, probably about six, six to nine months to get to a point where I was able to have a natural healthy period. Um, and even then I had to wait until I'd had three natural menstrual cycles before even contemplating increasing my exercise. Um, so yeah, it was a real, a real journey. And that for an elite level athlete who was training at the volume that you had been training at to downshift in terms of that volume, I mean, that and and eat and seemingly eat more was that a big mental shift as well for you yes exactly i had spent years by that point programming my mind to believe that i had to eat a certain way i had to look a certain way and i had to train a certain way in order to compete at the highest level of sport so then to try and reverse all those um, beliefs and that mentality was a very difficult process psychologically um and to most people, if you told them to put their feet up and eat what the heck they want for a, a few months, that would be fine. But mm. for me and for many athletes, it was a real struggle. Mm, mm, it, and it, it is. And I think like there's there's obviously varying degrees of of runner out there from elite to, to every day. But I think a lot of runners can can relate to that because there is this sort of thing of like you've got to suffer. Like, you know, like no pain, no gain, that kind of all these mantras that are out there that like you need to kind of put yourself through the mill to reap the rewards and that shift, I think when you're at the the sharp end of it as as you you were like is yeah i can't i can't kind of begin to to imagine it so you've you've come back you've you've gone on this extraordinary journey to to recover um and gone through this process so when was the time for you where you felt like you wanted to start sharing your experience with people and sort of drumming up more kind of support and understanding for for Red S? And where was where was that in terms of the timeline, in terms of people's kind of knowledge of Red S? It had, was it still the kind of, did it still have its original name or had it sort of been re kind of, not rebranded, but sort of renamed as Red S at, at that time as you were recovering and coming through it? Yeah. So I had, I would say I was recovered um, enough to compete again in sport by 2018. Um, so that was obviously a long way after I first started to experience it. And by that point, it was starting to gain traction. Um, this condition had been talked about more. Um, researchers were calling for more to be done to raise awareness um, for international federations to take it more seriously, to start um, understanding its prevalence and its impact on athletes. And so I was learning more and more about it, but it took a long time until I felt able to talk about it. You know, there were so many times that I'd sat down to start blogging and stopped myself because I thought, well, this is just going to sound like an excuse for poor performances. You know, it's mm. um, one of those things that is, it's hard to admit to when you're suffering from it. But once I'd come through that, I felt the need to share my experience in order to try and um, prevent others from falling down similar pitfalls, but also to show people that they weren't alone. And I had started to understand the magnitude of it. I was being approached by athletes left, right and centre saying that they'd had similar experiences. And I knew that this is something that needed to be talked about and um, finally found the opportunity to do that. And just to go back with that sort of initial reticence of of wanting to sort of share your story, like now that it, it it is growing in terms of public awareness and people understanding what it is and other people recognizing that it's happened to to them, like early on, was there that sort of misconception of it of like, oh, it's just 
people using it as an excuse or like, oh, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's not the, the big affliction that they're making out. Was there a bit of like blowback from, from, from that within the kind of running community? I think so. And I think to some extent there still is, um, there mm. will always probably be this stigma surrounding eating disorders or disordered eating, um, mental health problems like depression and anxiety that typically arise from this relative energy deficiency. Mm. Um, and so for me, as someone who had been so competitive and so um, determined to prove that I was a strong and independent individual, it did feel difficult to admit to a, a weakness or something that I was suffering with. Um, and I think that that still remains among the athletic population. Mm. Mm. And well, and I just kudos to you for for just pushing forward and pushing through that and you know, drumming up more and more kind of, uh, uh, you know, that that's how this whole conversation has has happened and been facilitated is the work that you're doing with with Project Red S kind of popping up on my radar, me being curious about it, having spoken to other athletes who've talked about their experience with it and wanting to kind of get more uh, information and, and understanding about it. So when did that idea sort of form to to make this kind of um this is it what is it is it a charity is it a foundation what 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 is project red s and yeah where did the idea come from and and what's the kind of what's the mission for it yeah so i would describe it as a collaborative initiative aimed at raising awareness improving prevention and assisting recovery um, from red s and it involves athletes um, it involves healthcare professionals psychologists dietitians um, medical specialists who are informed about this condition and can help athletes um, overcome it but also help improve prevention measures um, working with governing bodies and other organizations to raise awareness and figure out together how we can or what we can do to prevent it from arising in the first place um, and the reason it came about was a couple of years ago now I started mentoring um, my best friend Emily who is a doctor now she was the one who helped me overcome it once we figured out what the problem was mm. and uh, the the value that she brought to my recovery experience was so enormous and that was simply from a friend peer-to-peer -peer perspective and I thought well if Emily can help me as much as she she did maybe I could give something back to somebody else who is struggling with this and so I started mentoring um whilst being very aware that I had no medical nutritional psychological qualifications behind me simply just it was an athlete to athlete peer support thing. Mm. Um, and I could not believe the uptake. It was shocking how many people um, were coming forward asking for guidance um, about where to go for medical support, but also how to implement their suggestions, um, which is, to me, the hardest part. Um, and then in 2021, um, I was on furlough from the National Trust where I worked full time. Um, and I had an opportunity to establish something a bit more concrete, which was a web resource containing all the information, advice um, and resources that I felt I would have benefited from when I was experiencing my own problems. Um, and through that, I was um, actually approached by an investor who gave me the opportunity to take this um, to the next level by committing to, to this full time. Um, so it's incredibly become my full time job. And um yeah, I'm not sure, you know, how long this investment will last, but for now we're building things up and hoping to secure some more finance um, from corporate sponsors, other organizations in the future. Oh, I love that. I love that. I just, what what a fantastic sort of um, thing to have come from, you know, some uh, so such a difficult period for yourself and for you to kind of turn that into something so positive and such a force for change. And just to go back to something you were saying then, you know, you were saying that, you know, I wasn't a a qualified nutritionist or or a psychologist, but that peer-to-peer -peer mentoring, which I think is in, invaluable because running can be so, um, in terms of like programming and information, like when you look at a training plan on a bit of paper, it's like you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. It's very sort of binary and black and white. And I feel like sometimes when you're looking for advice, if you're going on the wild west of the internet, it sometimes can be sort of, you follow these three points and you'll feel better. But there's something so invaluable about having that personal connection with someone who knows what it is you're going through, has experienced it themselves and can can help, you know, take people through what I can only imagine is uh, a really uh, discombobulating 
experience. And I'm, I'm kind of curious to sort of share some of your um, knowledge with people listening who perhaps may have some some questions or curious to know more. I mean, would you would you be up for sort of uh, doing some some questions about about the condition and maybe sharing some of that with the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. So you you were talking earlier about the your kind of unintentional entry into into Red S, but there's also the intentional entry into Red S. Can you kind of go into a bit of detail about the the differences between those two? Because I think that's quite important to, to for people to understand. Yeah, so it's quite difficult to describe anything related to this as intentional because, of course, nobody sets out to um, suffer the effects of an energy deficiency. But I think some people are more prone to um, feeling the need to restrict energy intake, um, which I guess I was doing at the time, um, and you know, trying to acquire the body composition of others or what they would expect an elite athlete to look like, mm. um, or simply just trying to improve their performance without having the right nutritional support with that. Um, and then the unintentional side of things is just not not realizing the amount of nutrition you need in order to support your activities. Um, and that's really common too. You know, athletes are often busy, especially if they work or study um, or go to school even. And it's hard to get the right nutrition if um, you're not really consciously thinking about how to refuel around your training. Mm, and just kind of carrying on from that, that unintentional side of things, like if you, uh, and, and like you said at the beginning, like no one intentionally goes in with like, I'm going to experience red S, but like the the unintentional side, when you are, like you say, you're working and you're distracted, are there, are there signs and symptoms? Are there red flags that perhaps people can look out for that perhaps they may ignore, but actually might be an indicator that they're sort of in the early stages of, of red S? Yes, there are. There are a few red flags. Um, if you're looking at the hormonal side of things, you might notice a shift in mood. Um, you might feel a little bit low, maybe depressed, um, have mood swings. You might just feel like something isn't quite right. And that's um, something that I experienced and a lot of people I speak to do as well. It, it's just this general sense that something is is missing or not not going so well mm. um but also you you might experience low testosterone which can manifest as a loss of morning erections among males and that's not something everybody feels comfortable talking about um but i wish they did because it's a normal physiological response to having a, a low energy availability and um that's something that could be a big red flag among men mm. and then among women that could manifest as a missing or a regular menstrual cycle or any change in a period, it could be an increase in bleeding, it could be increase in frequency or a decrease in frequency of menstrual cycles. Um, it's not just the missing element. So those are a few big red flags initially. But then, of course, you've got the stress fractures, um, the bone health injuries, um, and also the soft tissue injuries, you know, all of these things can be affected by an energy deficit and it's just good to be aware of them. Mm, and you talked on as well there, which I think is maybe a, a misconception that it, it's a, it's a, an affliction that only affects women, but it, it affects men as well. And there was, uh, I think it was, was it Jake Riley, the American marathoner as well, who also came out saying that he'd been suffering with red S and it's not, it's not just exclusive to women. Like, like you said, like it's something that can affect all athletes. Yes, exactly. And that's um, why it's so brilliant that we have this new term to describe the effects of low energy availability with Red S rather than the female athlete triad. Mm, mm, okay. And now normally, like at the end of my uh, podcast interviews, I, I ask the guests to debunk uh, a myth within the kind of running space. And I feel like there's there's quite a few kind of, and you kind of brilliantly uh, before we jumped on this recording, sent through a few of these sort of uh, comments, sort of societal myths that sort of surround Red S. And I feel like it might be a good opportunity to sort of to get into them, like some of these uh, some of these phrases that perhaps are a little bit loaded and uh, perhaps might not be the best thing to be putting out there in the kind of running is ecosystem. Is one of the classics is you look like an athlete slash runner. I mean, why is that perhaps not the best thing to to say to to someone? Oh, this is something that I have heard so many times and continue to hear um, when people try and guess what sport you participate in or um, tell you that you you look the part. Um, and actually, there is no set look or aesthetic for an athlete. And it's so frustrating that um, that's become such a normalized thing to say. And 
uh, one of my biggest concerns about this this problem of red S is that people often think they need to be thin to have it, um, and actually it can occur at any weight. And mm. so if we ignore the fact that um, people in a bigger body might be suffering from it, then we will miss a huge percentage of the population who can experience this issue. Mm. I mean, again, not to like, but just to draw from my own experience, like I've, even I've had that comment of like, oh, you look like a runner. You look quite, you look quite skinny, skinny. You look quite quick. And I definitely had that sort of subconscious, like, oh, cool. Okay. Like Mm. that sort of affirmation of like, oh, okay, this is what I'm supposed to look like. And then perhaps looking at other photos of myself in races, maybe not being as thin as uh, I was when I, you know, warranted that comment from that particular individual and thinking like, oh yeah, maybe I could do with their, with uh, you know losing some weight to maybe get back to that that perception, I think it's uh, it can be so loaded. I think and it does it does impact perhaps sometimes at a subconscious level, and it kind of you can sometimes feel it sort of trickling through. So it's always good to to underline. And another one that comes out, and we kind of touched on this earlier, but this whole thing of no pain, no gain. I mean, I feel like this is something that needs to get chucked in the bin slightly. Yes. <laughs> and I guess to some people it's motivating and maybe as you're starting out on your sporting journey, it can even be helpful in getting you out the door to, to do your run. But there comes a point when you have to listen to your body signals. And I think as athletes, we're prone to pushing past them. And this all you know, contributes to the no pain, no gain mentality is that we think we need to suffer in order to reap the rewards whereas actually it's all about working smarter not harder mm, yeah absolutely and i just yeah I, I, and i don't want to uh to sort of uh disencourage people who are perhaps entering into their running journey of saying like because for some people you know that initial kind of getting stuck in might be a good thing to motivate them to discover a world of movement and running and, and love and enjoyment of, of sport. But sometimes there, there comes a point where it's perhaps not the the best thing in the world. Now, another one, no carbs before marbs. This thing about why, when did carbs become enemy number one? Because I, I, for one, bloody love carbs. But what I, this, this has been this whole societal sort of shift towards vilifying various kind of food groups. And I feel like sometimes it's, it's, uh, product led by particular companies or like wellness movements, maybe, I don't know. I'm going to start making bold claims here. I'm throwing various people under the bus, but when did carbs become a bad thing? Yeah, it's a good question. I am not sure either, but I remember that when I was, um, going through this myself, I was afraid of overdoing it with the carbohydrate. And it's strange because yeah, as a young athlete, they always said refuel with pasta and, um, make sure you eat your toast and stuff. But I think that these big producers, um, diet culture, they all want to bring out a new trend, a new fad diet. And I guess carbohydrates in excess for sedentary people might not be such a good idea, but for athletes, it's our main fuel source. It's what we rely on to keep us energized and um, repair and recover. So it's such a shame that that's become uh, something that's normalized. Mm, Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, I'm sure there'll be keto fanatics in the comments coming at me but um that's a (laughs) podcast for for another day but if perhaps you've been you've been listening to this conversation and perhaps you're you're training with other runners at the moment and there's someone that perhaps maybe is ticking the boxes in terms of some of the symptoms that we've been talking about like because i imagine it's quite a tricky subject to to approach if there's someone you're concerned about like would you offer any advice about how you might go around that kind of discourse and what it might might look like? Yeah, so it's often advised to, to approach somebody as directly, quickly, um, supportively and confidentially, confidentially as possible. So um, I always think a good time to do that is when you're on a warm down or you're um, on a long, easy run and you're just talking openly to somebody else about how their energy levels are, how their injuries are and how they might be feeling about things. Um, just trying to pick up on whether they seem to have some disordered thoughts around food or training or um an inability to rest, um, feeling like they need to push on and do more. These are, you know, common red flags. And I think if we can maybe just point somebody in the direction of some support resources, that's often the best place to start because it's quite difficult to have these conversations without somebody feeling accused of Mm. um, doing the wrong thing and and nobody wants to be the accuser. So it does help to have a um, sort of mediator by way of a web resource or, or some platform to turn to. 
And do you think it could become quite tricky as well of that individuals being coached by someone and that coach might feel perhaps that maybe it's a coach with a lot of experience might feel that you're slightly questioning their knowledge or their kind of experience or, you know, how they've worked with athletes in the past? Yeah, I think so. I can imagine this is a tricky topic for coaches. Um, but ultimately, if you're looking at the athlete as a whole, there is so much more to their life than what's experienced within a, a coaching session or even that relationship with the coach. You know, they feed themselves, they rest and recover in their own time. So the coach can't be held responsible for every aspect of an athlete's life. Um, so I, I hope they don't take it too personally. And, you know, it's everything in sport is a constant balance and we're mm. all figuring out how much is too much and how much is enough and it's nobody's fault but these lines can often be crossed far more easily than than people realize mm, mm. and and yeah it's just a curious one i think because just curious for me to to know that and i think also with coaches is is that coaches aren't psychic either i think and if the, if, if there's a, a wider understanding of this that perhaps prompts that uh, greater dialogue between an athlete and a coach that they are then able to get a fuller picture of what's happening with that athlete then you know perhaps there are there are ways for them to to come through this particular experience that they are have they are having and that's something i think is really important to underline is that this is something you can come back from this isn't this isn't the end for an athlete if it's something that you are experiencing. Exactly. Yeah. And I think that's something we need to talk more about. And often you see an athlete who might experience overtraining syndrome or an eating disorder or something potentially intertwined with red S and think, you know, that they disappeared off the face of the earth. They never came back from this. And there's this huge fear surrounding that that might be you. But actually, if you're able to get things under control quickly with the right support, um, there's nothing to say that you can't be happy and healthy and performing at the highest level of sport again. And um, I hope that Jake Riley comes through as a male example of somebody who can do that. And mm. um, yeah, it's it's encouraging to know that this is something you can recover from and you can't say that about every medical condition. Mm. And where are you at right now with running? Like what's your relationship with it at the moment? Yeah, so actually my main goal when I was recovering from all of this was to show that you could make a comeback and return to compete for your country. And I'm thrilled to say I was able to do that in 2018 and 19. And um, it was only in January this year of 2022 that I decided to call it a day and retire from competitive athletics. And I'll never say never because I, I have tried to retire in the past and always got roped back into <laughs> my local league race. And then from there on Liverpool and I get swept into it again. But I am happy just as a recreation, recreational hobby jogger and um, enjoying it more than ever, I'd say. What's that? I'm always curious with that transition for, for elite level competition, that experience of letting go of the, letting go of that a little bit. I mean, what was your experience of that? Like, did you find it difficult or were you ready when that time came? Yeah, well, this time around, I found it remarkably easy because I had, I guess, been forced out of the sport by this issue, um, mm. you know, in the past. And that was so incredibly traumatic. I couldn't believe how hard it was to experience being pushed out of something that you love so much and um, without even knowing why. And um, that was such a, a sort of life affirming time. And I had to really dig deep and um, explore my own psychology to to get my head around that. So this time around, when I was able to make the choice myself without being forced into it, it was far easier. And um, as I say, I'll, you know, never draw a line under it because things can change. But just for now, I'm, I'm happy enjoying it recreationally and trying my best to give something back to the sport through Project Red S. Oh, and you absolutely are. And it's such an incredible resource. So this is an online platform. Like talk us through what people can access, where they need to go to access it. Like, and what's, what's kind of, uh, what's on the slate for Project Red S, like as you, as you build it up and, and move it forward? Yeah. So at the moment, you know, we're just a year in, um, still in our infancy, but building rapidly. Um, we've got a web resource at red-s.com, which hopefully provides everything an athlete or a member of their support team would need in terms of information, um, advice and support 
by way of um, finding medical experts, dietitians and psychologists who are equipped to deal with athletes with this problem. Um, but also we're working with governing bodies. We're trying to deliver talks in clubs and universities and produce some resource packs and educational tools to help just spread awareness of this, because I think that's where to begin is that it's still a relatively new term and, and we need to be talking about it more than we are now in order to work on prevention and recovery first. And I mean, I'm not want to sort of do you out of a job because you're only a year in, but is there is there a future where this work doesn't need to happen, do you think? Is that the kind of a goal? I'd love that to be the goal. Yeah, I think um, if we can get enough medical doctors, um, your regular general practitioners to understand what this problem is and direct athletes straight straight to the right resources, then it would totally eradicate the need for a website like this, which would be the ultimate goal. Um, unfortunately, I think that would be a, a long-term um, goal because right now, if you went to your GP with a REDS-related problem, they might say... Um, you know, take some time off and, and eat more or something, mm. but they would not know where to turn in terms of um, recovery advice or or the right specialists to see. So we've got work to do for sure. Is that and is that the is that the real kind of heavy lifting for you from your organization in terms of like get, getting into those rooms with people within within like, you know, general practitioners or within the NHS to kind of train and help them get a better purchase on what this is so that those kind of conversations don't happen in, in GPs offices. Absolutely, yes. At the moment, we're relying on a, a small handful of reds um, and you know medical professionals within the sports um, medicine world to help athletes with this problem. And often they're private; they come at a cost, and it's very difficult to get the right support through your GP. So, if we're able to get this onto the medical curriculum and educate GPs about where to go, um, where to refer athletes to, then that would be a huge, huge help. So yes, we will be trying our best. Oh yes, I just I love it. I just love all of everything that you're doing. It's just such a fantastic contribution to be to be making and just to be making more people aware. So, if people are listening and there's things that Pippa's sort of spoken about that chime with you, or you want to find out some more information, I'll be putting all of the the relevant links into the show notes so that you can go onto the website and and find out more. And are there, do you have any, are there any of sort of Red S events happening or any talks or anything that are coming up that people can kind of come to? Any, anything else people need to be made aware of that's happening with Project Red S? Yes. Well, hopefully, um, if you do go onto our website, you can find all our upcoming events and things on the latest news and blog section. But we have got something um, in November, I think it's on the 6th, which is a Sunday. Um, we're collaborating with Dr. Nikki Key, who is um, a leading endocrinologist and Red S researcher um, with an event in Cambridge. So that will be exciting. We'll be talking all things endocrinology, athlete health and performance and hormones and um, hopefully it'll be interesting to some people. <laughs> oh, I love it. Brilliant. Well, oh, fantastic. Well, um, Pippa, thank you so much. You've been such an extraordinary guest and proffered so much information about this subject. And hopefully people listening, if if any of this is chimed with you or if, if there's anything more you want to find out, please do go to, to the website. There's, there's so much wonderful information there. And Pippa, thank you for coming on and being such a brilliant advocate and such a brilliant guest on The Big Room. Thank you so much. Um, this is an exciting opportunity. I think we need more conversations like this and I'm really grateful to you for facilitating them. So hopefully it's been helpful and um, yeah, really enjoy your podcast. So I'll remain a faithful listener. <laughs> you heard it here first, listeners. That is a verbal contract. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> A big, big thank you to Pippa. So much to take from that episode. Such brilliant, brilliant insight. And like I said at the start, I'll be linking to all of the relevant links via their fantastic website in today's show notes on the Instagram post as well. So if you want to learn more, get a better understanding, then I definitely recommend getting in touch with the team. They're doing some brilliant, brilliant work about this condition. Thank you so much for joining us for this midweek episode. Moving forward, the aim is to start putting out two episodes a week. So if you're down for that, then support us by following us on Instagram. Join the Discord where you can talk about episodes, shape the future of the podcast and suggest guests. There's so much more coming for 2023. So I'm always grateful for you for tuning in every week for The Big Run. <laughs>